Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you reach for your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18, uh, you might want to find your notes out of your bulletin as well as we dig into God's Word for our sermon time today, returning to the great gospel of Matthew. Um, trust that it was of benefit to you. Oh, that's recording. Oh, no. Yeah. Where is the pause button? Cancel. Uh, just hit stop. This there. is where okay. you uh, to focus upon the names of the Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ and its relationship to the to our Heavenly Father through the Christmas series. It actually felt good to me to open my Bible back to Matthew here. I know we've been there a long time. In fact, let me tell you, our section today, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, is a section that we had bounced forward to when we were in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 6. There's a section there on forgiveness. And our Lord was addressing that important topic. And so we had come forward um, to Matthew 18. And I had had in my mind, we would deal with Matthew 18, this section of it, then with that sermon. And then when we got here, we could just blow on through Matthew and we would just get through. Well, we're years in Matthew. And it was over two years ago that we had that section. And I just had on my heart that we shouldn't run through this passage. In fact, it's connected to the first part of chapter 18 that we've been studying. But before we dig in, let's ask ourselves a question. Um, Did you make any New Year's resolutions? What are you going to do to improve yourself for 2017? You're going to be satisfied with the same old, same old? Um, Maybe you don't do resolutions because you always fail. And it's just another... Red X, you know. What are you going to do? Going to lose weight? Going to get in shape? Going to read more books and watch less television? Going to Facebook less? Talk to people at the dinner table? What are you going to do to make your new year better? Can I challenge us today that, that this passage of Scripture really is very appropriate for the new year? Because if God is going to bless us as his church and bless us as his families and his people, do you know that we cannot carry the baggage of broken relationships into 2017 and expect his blessing upon us? And our Lord is talking about, and he's giving specific instruction in Matthew 18 on what to do when people sin against us. You will recall that Matthew 18, that we've had several sermons there in this passage, this section that's kind of known as the church discipline passage, because it talks about if a brother sins against you, then you're to go to him. If he doesn't respond and repent and confess and forsake and restore relationship, you're to find someone else, two or three to go with you. If they still harden their heart, you're to bring them before the church. Ultimately, they're to be excommunicated. That is how seriously God takes the fellowship of believers and the unity of believers. What I want you to realize is something that you might not have thought about before, but as we begin this remarkable story that our Lord is going to tell to teach us how to deal with someone who has sinned against us, that it is connected. It's, it's a continuation of this whole church discipline, church unity, sinning against one another, broken relationships passage, and what to do about it. 
So if you have your notes nearby and your pen, your Bible opened, are you ready to roll here for a new year of studying God's word together? I hope so. You pray for me and I'll pray for you and let's grow this year. Let me read our text. It's Matthew chapter 18. It begins with verse 21. To the end of the passage, you'll recognize it, I think, because it's a very familiar parable that our Lord told. It begins with a question that the Apostle Peter, who was receiving this instruction previous to this from our Lord, asks. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Uh, How many times if someone sins against me, do I have to forgive them? That's a pretty good question. As many as, say, seven times, Peter asks. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or your Bible translation might say 70 times seven. That would be 490, not 77. Now Jesus, triggered by this question, responds with a most fascinating story. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, verse 27, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And you kind of have to stop there and just say, wow, wow. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him into prison until he should pay back the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him, and he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Wow. What a story. I think you'll find it helpful If you do use the notes, it begins, doesn't it, with a very helpful and practical question from Peter. What a practical question. Lord, if someone sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive them? Um, The question question points out, doesn't it? Or the question actually is summarized in, is there a limit to forgiveness. That's the question, right? That's what Peter's getting at. Is there limitations on my parameters of forgiveness? Do I always have to forgive? Lord, how about maybe seven times? Because then like my justice meter kicks in and I demand justice and I can only handle this so much. 
I'd like us to just think about the question for a minute because the question is loaded with ramifications. There are some assumptions embedded in the very question that Peter asks that lays a good foundation for our message today. So Peter, hearing our Lord speak specifically about dealing with a sinful brother within the church, how to deal with that. Sometimes he confesses, sometimes he doesn't. What do we do if he doesn't? Then Peter gets this idea. Okay, Lord, then... And we don't know if Peter was dealing with some specific situation or if it's just hypothetical in his mind. So then Peter says, well, Lord, what if somebody sins against me seven times? Is that enough? How many times? Seven? Okay, embedded in the question are a number of realities or assumptions. Let's just run through those. Letter A in our notes. First of all, when Peter asked the question... Clearly, we have the assumption then or the reality that an acknowledgement that I will be sinned against, right? I will be sinned against. Isn't that interesting? All right. You would think that fellow believers in Christ, and this is talking about believers in Christ here. Get that straight. We wouldn't have to worry about this so much. We would always be kind to one another. We wouldn't offend one another. It's not how it works. Even in the body of Christ, we can offend one another and peter knows that and peter might have a situation going on that's bothering him so when someone sins against me we have there the reality that i will be sinned against letter b we also have in peter's question the assumption that i might be sinned against repeatedly and by the same individual do you see that lord if someone sins against me how many times do i have to forgive them i will be sinned against potentially by a person repeatedly and it could be the same person thirdly i want you to see that embedded in the question is the reality that i might be sinned against by a brother in christ i've already kind of emphasized that that he's talking to believers here but peter says it right if my brother will sin against me, how many times do my brother? I'm talking about people who are followers of Christ. I'm talking about people who I go to church with. I'm talking about people maybe that I live with. I might be talking about my husband, my wife, my children. How many times, Lord? And he says, it could even be a brother in Christ. Fourthly, letter D, it is also laying out the assumption that I am willing to forgive the offender at least for a while. Don't you get that out of Peter's question? Lord, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Uh, Seven times? You see, I am willing to forgive, but I'm only willing to forgive so long. Do you remember the old Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee? J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible. He's with the Lord and he did a, a radio program that was often, I often would pick it up, even today, you hear it on AM radio stations, J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible, and he just teach verse by verse through the Bible. He told a story um, about years ago, um, an Irish prize fighter who came to America and got saved. He accepted Christ as his savior, and he became a preacher and an evangelist. This Irish prize fighter was in a community setting up a big tent for some tent meetings. And a couple of the community thugs, uh, McGee tells the story, a couple of the community thugs came to this Irish prize fighter converted to Christ into preaching the gospel. And they decide to rough up the preacher a little bit and disrupt things. And the preacher was helping put up the tent and 
these community thugs come around him and they start shoving him around and prize fighter didn't do anything in fact he kind of turned his face a little bit and one of the thugs pushed him and then he he jacked him on the jaw the guy turned around picked up his hat the preacher did put it on and he turned his cheek the other way and one of the other guys got up there and gave him a hook right in the jaw and then the prize fighter took his hat off took his coat off and he said as far as i know that's all the further instruction i have from my lord (laughs) right isn't that isn't that how we operate It's like, I'm willing to forgive. Don't tell me I won't forgive you. I'll forgive you. I'll even turn the cheek. But all reasonable people know there's a limitation here. And a great theologian, Clint Eastwood, said, a man's got to know his limitations. That came out of nowhere. So Peter's saying, right? He's saying, I am willing to forgive the offender at least for a while, but Lord, but Lord, don't you know, letter E, that I will potentially reach the limits of my willingness to forgive? I'm willing to forgive even up to seven times, but I am going to reach the limitations here of my willingness. And then that justice meter, I can't hold it back. It's just not fair. This guy deserves it. It is so repeated. And furthermore, it's just, it's just no good anyway. He deserves to be hurt. And I think letter F embedded in Peter's question is the very concept that it is reasonable to think that there is indeed a limit to forgiveness. And our Lord gives a radical answer. And doesn't our Lord often give the answer that is opposite of what we feel in our humanity. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, uh, Peter, I'm not telling you seven times is not a good number. I'm telling you, the ESV translates the number used there, 77. Uh, The New American Standard uses the the concept of 70 times seven. Uh, The Lord is clearly... And by the story that he tells is clearly emphasizing that this is a number that we don't track. It's unlimited, Peter. We don't, we don't keep track. Now, you need to know, don't you, that this is the way Christ thinks versus the way we think. It's hard. It's hard. It's easy. It's easy to just do things the way you want. But to come to Christ and to hear his teaching and to surrender to his will and to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, you show me how to live and I will live that way. It's not an easy thing. In fact, you can only do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. It reminds me, doesn't it, of our, uh, the law of love. The Bible talks specifically about how extensive love goes. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. You love your neighbor as yourself. We were talking at our house the other day about, uh, maybe I used this illustration just recently. I'm having deja vu all over again here, but if I did, it still illustrates it. We were uh, Christmas Day or something at our house here, um, and 
Oh, it was Jonathan's birthday, and Janet had wonderful ice cream cake. Did I already tell you this story? And my brother-in-law, George, was there, and he wanted ice cream cake. And my sister-in-law, Rhonda, um, who I'm going to give a kidney to someday, it seems, and I hold that over her head a lot, um, (laughs) didn't want ice cream cake. And we sit down to eat, and Rhonda reaches over and starts eating off of her husband's plate. And I defended him. said, look, you can get some cake. No, I don't want any. And she reaches for another piece. Well, I have to tell you, I don't like that. If you say you don't want dessert, and I I love you. You know, I love Janny baby. I'll kiss her on the mouth. I'll take her on vacation. But if you want to buy ice cream, and then you want my ice cream, why don't you get your own ice cream? Right? Because the whole point is, it is just very, very difficult to, and we talked about it at the table with laughter, You really find out whether you love your neighbor as yourself when they start eating your dessert off your plate. (laughs) Right? Because if I love my neighbor as myself, it means that I'm just as happy for them to eat my dessert, my ice cream cake dessert, as I am for me to eat my ice cream cake dessert. That's not natural. (laughs) That's not normal. That's the point. The law of love is so demanding. And Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 13, in the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And the New American Standard translates that a little more literally. And it says, does not keep record of wrongs. Listen. If I'm going to limit the number of times I'm willing to forgive somebody, then I am limiting the amount of love that I'm willing to show them. Because I'm keeping a record of wrongs, and it is against the law of love to keep a record of wrongs. It all fits together, doesn't it? Well, we have this great story. That's Jesus' answer to Peter's practical question. And he now shares a story that really is kind of emotional. It's emotional in that you have emotional swing you kind of like the person, then you don't like the person, and you like the other person, and it, is, it hooks you. First of all, I want you to see in this story that Jesus tells, as he often does, he uses a parable to illustrate truth. And he gives us a helpful illustration, a helpful illustration. I want you to see right away, and this is very important as a foundation to the understanding of this passage. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this king, who had debtors. So right away, we know something. This story is an illustration to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven, remember, is God's domain where man doesn't rule. Right now, we live in a system that God allows man to interrupt. He allows Satan, the prince of the power of the air, to go about like a roaring lion and to shoot his his, um, darts, his fiery darts, Ephesians chapter 6. But the kingdom of heaven is God's ideal world. The kingdom of heaven is where God rules and he reigns. The church, as I understand it, is part of the kingdom of heaven. And we are part of this. And this is where God says, this is how it is when I rule and Satan and the flesh and carnality and human rule are gone. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how it's supposed to work. Okay, so he's not talking about the general world at large. He's applying this to his people in his kingdom who are believers in him. 
All right? The kingdom of heaven may be compared. And immediately, letter B, Jesus does what? He goes into total exaggeration. Total exaggeration. This is, again, an, uh, a situation where, culturally speaking, um, we don't get hit between the eyes with the exaggeration like the, the listener in the day of Matthew and when Jesus was teaching his disciples here. So when he began, verse 24, to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, the ESV translates it. Well, how much is that? And so I put a little illustration on there to help you understand it. Jesus is indeed exaggerating. So a laborer would have to work at the going rate of one denarii a day, which was the going rate in the Bible time, you would have to labor for 20 years at your daily wage rate to come up with one talent. So if you owed 10,000 talents, it means you have to work for 200,000 years. So the point is, we would say if we were doing this, there is this guy who came to the king and he owed him billions of dollars. And if we say billions of dollars... Essentially, it's, you can't pay it. At least normal people can't pay it. It was interesting. Ben Baker was sitting in the back, and the rest of my message, he had his head down in the early service, and he wrote on a piece of paper for me and handed it to me on the way out, and he said, Pastor Van, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the median household income in 2015 was 56,516. If you took that figure and applied it to this passage, the debt would be 11,303,200,000. There you go. According to Ben Baker. I believe him. So this guy, um, he says in a footnote, if you had that much money, you would be the 37th richest person in the United States. That kind of ruins my illustration because technically, I guess you could have somebody like that. And I think the point of the passage is, it's, it's beyond payable. The idea is, no one's going to be able to work 200,000 years to pay off the debt with the going rate. And so it is an exaggeration. And the point is that Jesus is illustrating how completely unpayable this debt is. Okay, now are you getting this? You're supposed to think now, okay, when Jesus tells his stories, you are supposed to say, okay, who's the master? Who do I identify with? You got to be careful about straining the points because there's one main point to the passage. But we're talking about a master who has servants who have an unpayable debt. Does that remind you of anybody? Does that remind you of you when you went to the cross and you stood before your heavenly father and you had a debt you couldn't pay and if you worked 200,000 years, you still couldn't pay your debt of sin? You see where we're going with this? Total exaggeration moves us to the proposition which is beyond imagination here. Let's see what the guy says. So the servant, verse 26, fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And yeah, right. So that's an unrealistic claim. Verse 26, that's an unrealistic claim. Verse 27, he receives then out of pity, it says, the master who had ordered him at first to be sold had pity on him. And out of pity on him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Wow. A totally undeserved forgiveness. An undeserved forgiveness completely based upon the pity of the master. Uh, do you have a picture of God's great compassion for lost sinners? 
springing up in your mind? A heavenly father who loves people who cannot pay their debt to him, who out of pity and kindness says, I love you and I forgive you. And it's our only hope because we cannot work 200,000 years to pay it off. Interestingly enough, he retaliates in selfishness. Selfish retaliation. Notice what happens. Selfish retaliation, verses 28 and 29. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Okay, an average payday in this era would have been one denarii. So you work the day, you got paid a denarii. You work 100 days, that's about a third of a year. Okay, about one third of a year. All right. And so there you go. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. This is unbelievable. This guy has just been forgiven an unforgivable debt. And now somebody comes to him with a very definable, manageable debt. And he refuses to forgive him. I thought to myself that there are some really important observations that need to be made right now about human nature, that we understand ourselves. First of all, don't we love mercy for ourselves but demand justice for others? Isn't that how it goes? We love mercy. Not receiving what I do deserve. That's the definition of mercy. Not receiving what I do deserve. We love that. But when you do something to me, you better pay. And you deserve it because you're so dumb anyway. What's wrong with you? Why would you think like that? Why would you say those things? Why would you hurt me like that? I demand justice. And didn't God put a justice meter inside of all of us? You see, if you're going to follow the law of love and the teachings of Christ, it will go contrary to the way you're hardwired in your human flesh. And you will need spiritual transformation or you can't do it. Secondly, we often minimize our own faults while magnifying the faults of others. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the things that upset us the most about the people around us, even the people we love the most, that we attack the harshest, are the very things that we're guilty of. And yet we love to magnify how they have done it wrong while we minimize our own failures. I think we love to do that. I don't know how many times that I have had couples in my office for marriage counseling or situations, and the hurts have run deep. The offenses are extreme. And one of, the, one of the two is pointing out at the other one how wrong they have been, how unjust it is, how unforgivable it is, how offensive it has been. And then we turn to that person and we start talking about them a little bit and then we find out they're guilty of the exact same thing. It might take on a little different texture, but the very same things that they have accused the other person of. And sometimes the things that we're most guilty of, we love to try to pin on somebody else. You're so unfaithful, and we find out it's a cover for their unfaithfulness. It's amazing, isn't it? How in our flesh, we get so jaundiced in our sight. We often are forgetful, too, aren't we, of things for which we have been forgiven. 
They don't deserve forgiveness. And then we realize in our own lives that we have had to be forgiven for essentially the same thing. We forget. We forget how much we've been forgiven. It's part of the whole teaching of the whole passage. An unforgettable debt. Well, it, it turns into an unjust incarceration, verse 30. It's going to throw that guy in jail, into debtor's prison. But there was a fateful observation, verse 31. The, the justice meter went off in the fellow servants who observed it all, and they realized, man, this isn't fair at all. He just got forgiven an unforgivable debt, and then he goes and chokes our buddy over here who owes him a very manageable debt. So they run to the master and tattle. You see, we can often not see in ourselves what others see in us. You notice that? We often do not see in ourselves what others see in us. It's why we need people around us who are willing to tell us the truth in love. It's why husbands, we need to listen to our wives. And wives, we need to listen to our husbands. And children, we listen to our mom and dad. You don't don't get everything. And we often have blinders. And there's things that we need to see. And, and, And... And if somebody loves me and is trustworthy in their love and they tell me that, I should be quiet and listen. Well, it turns into painful reparation. Reparation, making up for wrong. He was wrong. This guy who had the unforgivable debt forgiven by the master out of his kindness and pity, he refused, put him in prison, verse 30. The fellow servants report on him in verse 31, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, here's the reparation. The master delivers him to the jailers that he should pay all his debt. Complete frustration of the master, verse 33. The master in frustration then says, why don't you get this? Don't you see what you've just done? Listen, our model, our model of forgiveness is Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? That's Ephesians 4.32, right? We learned that in Sunday school. And be ye kind one to another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now, I recognize that forgiveness is a huge topic. In fact, I'm toying with the idea of delving into it a little bit further next week because there's a number of questions that come up. Well, what if that person hasn't repented of their sin? Do I still forgive them? Listen, at some level, one of the things I'm doing is, is I'm, I'm relieving that person of the justice that's demanded inside myself. And I'm going to turn that justice over to God. I'm pulling back. I'm not going to hold this over their head now. Peter wants to know how many times we're going to do that. How many times are we going to do that? And our Lord says, if you live in my kingdom, you just keep on doing this. This is how we act. This is the behavior of people who follow Christ. This isn't worldling behavior. Worldling behavior, haha, seven times, and then I smash your facey. It's over. I've had enough. God's kingdom, it just doesn't work that way. He gives the critical warning, and in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I always have a little trouble understanding how they're going to pay their debt if they're in jail, but so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Here's the part. 
This is a severe warning, isn't it? My heavenly father will do this to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a hard concept in this passage. It's one reason why I've emphasized that this is to believers within the kingdom of heaven. And this is a parable. I don't think that Jesus is teaching here that you can lose your salvation and end up being tossed into hell. You started out in the kingdom of heaven. You messed up and you didn't forgive. I'm pitching you into hell. That's not what he's talking about. I think that it is a statement of how extremely important it is for us to emulate the master's forgiveness model. And his point is that his blessing will be removed. And doesn't God discipline his children? And we're going to have communion in just a few minutes in the church at Corinth. The apostle Paul clearly said, That some of you are sick and have died because you've taken communion inappropriately. It's like everybody will be taking communion now. God, Ananias and Sapphira, we just visited that story a few weeks ago. And God knocked them dead right in front of the church. God disciplines his people. The book of Hebrews said that even as as an earthly father in love disciplines his children, our heavenly father disciplines us. Sometimes it hurts. I think at some level what he's saying here is, look, my blessing is removed, my discipline is put upon you, and you will not be happy. This is no way to receive blessing. I'm telling you in my kingdom, among my people, this is what it looks like. And you, you will not experience the blessing of God. In conclusion, what are some points? First of all, I think one thing we get out of this passage is that our Lord is teaching us clearly that forgiveness is a spiritual act of obedience. It is not a feeling. Sometimes we don't feel like forgiving. Forgiveness also involves allowing God to handle all of the justice. I already referenced that a little bit. But at some level, forgiveness means I am now transferring all justice that's going to go on in this situation to God. And I am not going to be the one who's meeting out the justice here. I'm not going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm not going to ignore you and walk down the other side of the aisle at Walmart. That's my little way of showing justice to you. Nah, 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 nah. Nope. As far as I am concerned, to the extent that I can control my own emotions and hard attitudes, all is well between us, as much as I can do that in my human mind and thinking. Because I can't forget this. But God gives me the grace to love you in the name of Christ. And I'm going to let all of the justice, because you are accountable at some level for your words, your attitudes. If you're repeating this behavior, you need to stop it. It's not acceptable to just keep repeating the behavior because you have unlimited credit of forgiveness. That's an abuse of grace. God forbid, Paul said, that we should sin, that grace might abound. So there's some issues and elements here. That's why I mean I think we might revisit this some more. Verse three, for, number three, forgiveness and restoration of relationships within the body of Christ is of great importance to God. I think that at the least, that's what we have to get out of this passage. That forgiveness and restoration of relationships is really important to God. If you don't get this out of this passage, you've missed the whole point. To the degree that he shows it looking like someone who gets thrown into Huskow and somebody else who doesn't. Number four, we cannot ignore this teaching 
and expect the blessing of God in our lives. Let's just leave it right there. There's a story, it might be apocryphal, of General Robert E. Lee at the conclusion of the Civil War on his horse riding up to a a large mansion. The lady of the house was in great distress because things had been trashed and she was railing against the Yankees. The war was just ending. Robert E. Lee, in his weariness, listened to her rail. She was pointing out to him how the Yankee artillery had totally destroyed and broken up a beautiful, huge granddaddy oak tree that was the pillar of their front lawn. And instead of being the beautiful tree that it once was, the branches were now um, shredded and, and it was just damaged. And she was so angry. She looked at Robert E. Lee and she said, what am I supposed to do? And he looked at her and he said, ma'am, I suggest you cut the tree down. Stop thinking about Yankees. I suspect there's some people that need to cut some trees down today and get that out of your yard. That memory, that monument to destruction, that monument to hurt that can't be repaired. Just get rid of it. There's only one way to get rid of it, and that's to go to the cross, to lay it down. Lord, if somebody sins against me, how many times do you think I should forgive him? Maybe seven? Now, Peter, 70 times seven. That's the way it is in my kingdom, Jesus says. Let's bow before the Lord. wonder if you can identify some shredded relationships in your world. You know the kind of hurt you'd like to do to that person, and they deserve it. Can I suggest that you have forgotten today how much you did not deserve forgiveness when you bowed at the foot of the cross? And that as we partake of the elements of communion to conclude this service, we're going to hold the bread, which represents the broken body of our Lord, this unleavened cracker, and how his body was broken for us, and we didn't deserve it. And we're going to hold the cup, and we're going to drink the juice that represents his blood that flowed, blood that was pure, blood that that never sinned, And and we had a debt that we couldn't pay, and now we're holding things over people's heads, forgetting how much the Master has forgiven us. We owed billions in the sin account. We couldn't pay it. And the Master comes along and swipes his Jesus credit card and pays it all when we didn't deserve it. And all of the credit of Christ's righteousness is now transferred to my once bankrupt account. That's what happens at the cross. I acknowledge my sinfulness. I acknowledge my inability to pay for my own sin. And God does it for me in Christ. Christ took the sin of the world upon himself, paid my debt.